It's been good to be here and to be um, in the presence of the Lord together. God is always with us. He's everywhere present, but somehow he uh, is present in a different way when we gather to worship him. So thank you for sharing and very thankful that we have a living God who is leading us and actively involved in, in every part of our lives. Um, so thank you for, for sharing during share time. Sometimes when you stand up to preach, it feels like a continuation of the service. And other times it feels kind of like a changing of, of gears. And this is one of those moments that it's a little bit of both that feels a bit like a shifting of gears. One thing that is a, a con continuation, Danny encouraged us to be transparent. So I want to be transparent here and uh, got, obviously I have my Bible up here. And when you look at Scripture, you know, the first five books of the Bible, you know, about to hear tell us about creation and the law and the first chunk of 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 the Bible. Then you got a pretty significant section here of stories in the history. And I love stories. And if, if I go by what I'm naturally drawn through, this section right here, I can spend a whole lot of time into. Then you get into a section of, of psalms and poetry. Again, I love this. I read a psalm every day. I spend a lot of time there. Then you get to this big, long section here on prophecy. And it's about that big of a section of my Bible. Then you get into the Gospels and Acts. Got a little section of the epistles that rightfully so we spend a lot of time in. And we've got Revelation in the back. And I realized recently that the books of prophecy are 22% of the Bible. And as one of your pastors who's been preaching for 12 years, there was one time that I can remember that I flipped to a text out of the prophets. And it's equally inspired, but it's what I would call a coffee mug text. In other words, it was one of the texts that we almost always go to. So for whatever reason, um, I felt a bit convicted about that, and I feel led to look at a minor prophet this morning. I feel led to take us to the book of Joel. And so we're going to spend some time in history uh, kind of setting the stage. We're going to read through the book of Joel, and then I would like to just at the end uh, there are some things that I believe that God is saying um, is saying to us. One thing, just for clarity on the outset, when we talk about the minor prophets, all that that means is just that in Latin, the word means shorter. So don't, there's nothing you know, major and minor about the message of the prophets. Um, it is just, it's just the word that was attached to it. If you can't find the book of Joel, just slyly look at your neighbor and see where it is. Uh, they may help you out to find it. Um, it is right after the book of Hosea. Um, you could, can flip there. But we are going to spend a little bit of time in history before we read this. Um, and again, I know this isn't new, but I just think it's important for us to kind of cement in our mind what is going on. So you have, you have God's people who are the children of Israel that he has drawn into a covenant relationship. And a covenant relationship is one often where a king or somebody who was greater would draw somebody else into this, and there would be stipulations. So if you do this, I will do this. And so God has drawn the children of Israel into a covenant relationship, and there's lots of, if you do this, there's a, a ton of blessings. And equally so, if you do not obey and follow the rules or the laws, then there will be curse or thing, curses or things that follow. So that is a covenant relationship. God had put priests in place to teach the people, the law, 
And that was their primary job was to, to teach the law and to lead them in worship. But then throughout history, God would call individual prophets to speak on his behalf. And God would select these individuals to deliver his message for a specific situation. And often it was to remind them of the covenant. Look, we are, we are in a covenant relationship with God. Here is what he said. If we do this, then this will happen. And so that's often the message that they were sent um, to remind people of. Some of the time they were to announce God's intentions in the future. And one of the neat things is that God is so creative in getting people's attention. So you have, you, know, you have the books of the Bible and you've got history and narrative and then you get to the prophets and it's a lot of poetry. And you know, I, don't, I don't do a lot with poetry today. Um, but in, particularly if you were in an oral setting where you needed to pass on something, think how helpful poetry is in that setting. And it's not entirely apples for apples, but think how easy it is to remember songs. And there's the musical part of it, but there's also the poetic part of it. So the prophets, they're often uh, poetry. They do lots with word pictures. I mean, today we're going to talk about um, locusts with teeth like lions. Talk about God finding ways to get attention. Um, and then the prophets were even asked to be their own object lessons. You had Ezekiel eating a scroll, lying on his left side for over a year, and on and on and on. And so I hope what we can catch is how creative and how loving God is in getting his message to his people. So a little bit more uh, history there, and then we'll, we'll get into this. So the children of Israel, um, they were split into two, um, two kingdoms after, uh, basically after Solomon, there was civil war. You had the 10 tribes in the north, up here is the green, and then you have Judah and Benjamin down here in the south. And again, I'm vastly summarizing here and skipping lots of details, but what ended up happening is up here in the north, they set up idol, places to worship idols rather than coming to Jerusalem. And so keep this in mind that you have the northern and southern uh, kingdoms in Israel. Now, when we get into the prophets, they were sent. Uh, here's the same map, but it just shows you where the prophets were sent. Most of the prophets were actually sent to the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, a few to the north. Um, and Amos was born down here, but actually prophesied in the north. All right, here's a timeline. Um, there will be no test on this, and I know this is is too small to really read. If it would be helpful to you, I would be glad to email this out. What's happening here? Over here on the left, you have the timeline of the kings in Judah and the prophets. And if it's green, they were a minor prophet. If they were blue, it's a major prophet. Over here on the right, again, is the kingdom of Israel in the north. So it's interesting. Amos and Jonah were two of the very first prophets chronologically. And if you look here, Jonah was sent to the capital of Samaria, the very country that came and defeated the northern kingdom you know, a few years later. And so his response makes a lot of sense there. So anyway, you have the prophets prophesying before the fall of Jerusalem, and then you have some that are prophesying after the fall of Jerusalem, and it just shows the overlap, how long they, how long they prophesied and, and who was king. Now, you will notice that the one that we are looking at today is not listed. And the reason for that is we actually don't know for sure when and where Joel prophesied. So some people would say he was way early um, during the time when Joash was king as a little boy. 
And other people would say that it was probably actually one of the latest um, prophecies. We don't know for sure. I'll, without getting into all the details, I would tend to believe that he was one of the later, uh, one of the later prophecies. So one of the, uh, a couple of the things that make these, these books a little hard is that the historic context is lost unless we dig in. So that can be a challenge, and sometimes context is hard. Um, one of the things that struck me is in, in the books of history, we have all these stories of prophets and people and what's happening, and then you get into the books of the prophets, and it's basically their message. There's a little bit of story, but it's primarily their message. Um, and so that can make it a little bit difficult. Sometimes we run into problems, you know, did this already happen, or is this a future prophecy? I had to think of our Sunday school lesson coming up next week. So those are some of the difficulties we run into. And today I want to just encourage us, without getting stuck in the weeds, as they would say, of exactly figuring all that out, let's look at the book. What is God saying and what can we learn from it? Um, what can we learn from it? I am very thankful for these, the books of the prophecy um, because it shows us why God did what he did. And it so clearly shows his heart. Here are the people he drew into covenant relationship, and they get exiled. We don't even know what happened to the ten tribes in the north. To this day, it's a mystery. But God shows us very clearly why he did what he did and what his heart was um, towards those people. So in summary, what do we know um, about Joel? We don't know anything about him. His father is mentioned, who we also don't know anything about. Um, one of the interesting things about this book is that he's not pointing out a specific sin. Often the prophets, if you can see the eras that they lived in, it was a very sinful time, and they were called to point out specific sins. And I think Joel does, but he doesn't spell it out exactly what he's talking about. And one of the things as we read this, God is the central theme of this book. So God is the central theme um, of the book. All right, with all of that background, let's get into Joel. And um, just flip to Joel in your Bible. I'm not going to put the text here um, up on the screen today. I will read and we'll make a few comments as we go along, but then um, at the end, want to just dig into four things that God may be telling us today from the book of Joel. So Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. I had to think of the sermon that uh, Miss A.L. shared last Sunday of the importance of passing on our faith. And here's a call from from God to, to pass on what had happened. And here's what happened. Verse 4, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has, been, has invaded my land, mighty and without number, its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. 
So I just want to stop there. So what has happened is locusts have literally invaded the nation of Israel. And it's not clear. There's four different types of things um, mentioned. It's not clear what all that means. It may be worms and other things, but it is clear that it is locusts that, that have come and literally wiped out everything there. So I have a couple pictures up here, and I'm going to leave them here through chapter 1. Uh, this is in Morocco, um, a picture of what a locust swarm um, really looks like. Here's another picture of a tree, and no, that is not leaves. That's what happens to a tree after a locust swarm decides that that's what they're eating for lunch that day. I, something about these pictures just about gives me the, the creeps looking at them. I remember reading about this. This is the one I'm going to keep up here. This happened in, in 2020 um, in Africa. Here you have this gentleman is trying to protect his, his farm and his crops from a swarm of locusts. So what's happening in the book of Joel, this, this right here has, has happened, and their land is 100% devastated. And so God sends Joel with a message about this specific situation, but then he also looks ahead um, and describes things yet to come. So I also have here um, a pack of crickets. So they're not exactly locusts. These locusts were probably like grasshoppers, but I've got a pack of dried crickets here. And believe it or not, these were a Christmas gift to us from our neighbor. And they are bacon and cheese-flavored crickets. Um, so if, if any of you children want to see what locusts might have looked like, you can come see me afterwards. And at some point in the future, we'll open it up. And if you want to try a cricket, let Caden and Ashton know. So, um, But what was happening in the story, again, think if we can put ourselves in an agriculture setting where your livelihood and everything, what, you lived off of the land. And suddenly, you know, this happened, and the land is entirely devastated. So let's go on and see what, what God's word is for them. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. For the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. And catch this phrase, indeed rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament. O priest, wail, O ministers of the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. So the grain offering and the drink offering the people were supposed to bring that as an act of worship and praise. And they were in a situation, they didn't even have the things to bring. And beyond that, the priests were to, they were to take what they needed out of these offerings. And so none of that uh, was even happening in the house of God. Verse 14, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. So just note how often the, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is used in this book. We'll hear it uh, multiple times uh, through the next couple chapters. 
Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of God? The seeds shrivel under their clods, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all of the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. So chapter 1 is a very bleak chapter, and he's saying, call everybody together and cry out to the Lord. And one of the things that I was planning to mention uh, even before share time is just that I recognize there are many people here going through very difficult things. And the, the clear, I think, pattern in Scripture in the prophets and in the Psalms is it is not only fine, but it is actually encouraged that we just lament to the Lord. You read this passage, and it is descriptive on and on. Look, the, the fields are dried up. This is happening. This is wrong. It is, it is not wrong. In fact, God wants us to, to cry out and to pour our heart out to him and to lament uh, when, when life is not the way we hoped or what we would want it to be. And I also want to be really clear that today... What happened in Scripture was very clearly the discipline of the Lord. And not every hard thing we go through is that. Some of the things are, but not everything is. Um, and so just if you find yourself in a hard spot, lamenting to the Lord is one of, I think, one of the best things to do, to just cry out and fully tell God what's wrong and what you're feeling. And the people, the people do this. They spend a whole chapter in graphic detail what the problem is and, and crying out to God. All right, I, for one, am ready to flip the picture from Locust and move on to this other picture that we'll keep up here. And this is, the, uh, this is now chapter 2 and the theme that's going to be for chapter 2 and 3. So he shifts gears, and this was very definitely talking about something that had happened. And now he shifts to where he's looking to something in the future, and here's where prophecy is a little difficult to know. Is he talking about something that God was going to do to, to Israel unless they repented? Or is he foreshadowing uh, the second coming in the end? And in much of Scripture, it's probably both. Um, and so I think let's just let's read it with that in mind and, uh, and, and just keep that in front of us as we read through the rest of the book here. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it, to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run with a noise of chariots. They leap on top of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they each march in a line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march, they march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush from the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses 
They enter through the windows like a thief. Is this a graphic warning of the day of the Lord? And, what, um, and, and some people would believe that he's pointing back to the locust, um, but I personally would believe he's pointing ahead at a future event, either a warning or, again, the, the end of the world. Verse 10, before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? So God is actually the one leading. And the question is, who can endure? And the obvious answer is nobody. Verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, and even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, proclaim, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber." So you talk about urgency in proclaiming a fast. If you have a, a baby at home, come anyway. If you just got married and you're on your honeymoon, come anyway. Um, gather and, and have a fast and repent before the Lord. Verse 17, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army from you, and I will drive into it, it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things." Do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God. For he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame." Did you catch that after the people have repented, this is basically going one by one in reverse of the things that have been taken. God is restoring um, their land and all of these things. It just, it reads in reverse order where the blessing is flowing. And then the rest of the chapter um, is, is what's quoted in, in the book of Acts. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And what a promise that God is going to, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And that he is going to send his spirit before the covenant was just for the children of Israel. Now, it's actually for anyone who will accept, um, accept Jesus. And he fulfills both, uh, both sides of the covenant for us. And I will just read chapter 3 with very little comment. Again, this is where it feels pretty clear that he's looking forward uh, to the end and saying what will happen to all of those who insist on being opposed to the Lord and not following him. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there and on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all the regions of, of Philistia? Are you rending me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I am going to arouse them from the place where you've sold them and return your recompense on your head. Also, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. So just uh, stopping there, the, that prophecy is often quoted in reverse, to beat our swords into plowshares. And here he's saying it, we're going to take our plowshares and beat them into swords. And it is, call, again, it's calling the people who have continued to oppose God. God is bringing that to a natural conclusion that he will judge them for that. Um, so that's why that, that prophecy is reversed. Verse 11, Hasten and come, all of you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near, in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord, to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood, with which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So whenever, whenever we hear, um, at least for me, when you hear prophecies of, of the end of the world, it can be accompanied with fear. 
or it has been. Um, and I just want to point out uh, verse, verses 16 and 17 that it's talking about that, that yes, there is a day when the Lord will roar, he will judge, um, and there is fear with that. But for those of us who are believers, it doesn't need to be fear of judgment. And the end of verse 16 says that the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. So when we think forward for the church and for believers, God is actually our stronghold and refuge, even as he is roaring um, in that setting. Okay, thank you for listening um, to an entire book of the Bible, uh, the book of Joel. I just, and, um, as, we, as we wrap this up, I want to um, just talk about four things that I believe that God um, has for us today out of the book of Joel. And one, very simply, is that the day of the Lord will come. And this is something that, that I know we all know. Um, but Jesus really, truly is coming again. We believe that there will be a second coming. Um, all of creation was made by him, through him, and for him, and he is coming as the righteous judge. Um, and God has made a way that everyone, um, that no one has to face his judgment, but people will reject that, and God will come to make everything right. So there will be a day where every nation um, now, and even if it's far enough in the future that the nations we know of aren't even around. Every nation will come and will appear before the Lord. And one of the things I want to keep in mind is that every person in this room will appear before the Lord. And we won't appear as a church. We won't appear as a family. We will each individually appear before the Lord at his coming. And I'm very thankful that he will confess that he knows us he died for our sins, and we don't have to live in fear of judgment. But everything that we do, I think, needs to have this in mind, that we really do literally believe that we will meet the Lord face to face. Everybody we meet will meet the Lord. The second coming is real. We don't know how far off it is, but it is real. And I just want to keep that um, in front of me, that there is nothing more important than being ready for that day. The day of the Lord will come. The second thing that I see in the book of Joel is the purpose of God's discipline is always for my good. If you, if you look at chapter 2, God makes it very clear that he had sent all of these locusts, but he says to, to turn, and what he's telling the people is, come back to me with your whole heart. And, and he wants to reveal himself for who he is. And, and in chapter 2, verse 27 At the end of all of this, after he's restoring all of these things, he says, then you're going to know that I'm in the midst of Israel, and beyond that, that I am the Lord your God, that I am a very personal God, um, and that there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. So if, if you're going through correction from the Lord, and I actually hope that everybody in this room is going through correction from the Lord, God tells us that if you are loved by me, I will be actively correcting you. And that doesn't mean that God is angry with us. It doesn't mean that God's trying to find fault with us. Um, but God is actively fathering us and just constantly working for our good and teaching, um, teaching us. 
and I, I'm very aware of my weaknesses as a dad, but you know, having three children, I'm constantly thinking about how can I help them? How can I help them? And I just think that that is God's heart towards us every time he corrects us. It is always for my good. It's always to turn my heart more fully towards him, and it's always done out of love. The third thing I see here is that repentance is the only appropriate response to God's discipline. So there's a whole book here, but it really hinges on God just coming and saying, please call a fast, please repent um, and turn your hearts towards me. And in, in the passage, the way he describes it is, I want you to rend or tear your heart, not your garments. And in those days, when they were sad about something, they would tear their garments, they would you know, put on sackcloth and ashes, and God is saying, I want you to, to, to tear your heart and to, to repent. I think sometimes that we can think, rightfully so, of repentance as that moment when I realize that I am a sinner completely opposed to God and I accept his forgiveness, and that is repentance. But it actually goes far beyond that, and I think as his followers, it's something it's more of an attitude that he wants us to live in you know, day by day and moment by moment. Of it, Repentance is just changing our mind and, and turning direction and saying, look, God, you're right, I see it, I'm, I'm wrong. And to just live in that, and that is the only appropriate response um, to God's discipline. I want to read one other verse, and I recognize we could talk for a long time about this, but centered around repentance, 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice not because you were made sad, but because you were made sad to the point of repentance. For you were made sad as God intended, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. Notice verse 10. For sadness is intended by God, for sadness as intended by God produces a repentance that leads to salvation, leaving no regret, but worldly sadness brings about death. So there is a, there's a sadness or a sorrow over sin that the world has that just leads to death. But when we repent, of the, um, it turns us to God. And is it not amazing that the phrase in the promise is it leaves no regret? So I think we'll still regret the things we did wrong, but God takes away that shame and, and takes all of that from us. That godly repentance, he promises it's for our good and it, it leaves no regret. All right, the last thing I see is that God will respond graciously to repentance. Again, in, in the, the, what I would call the hinge passages in Joel chapter 2, it talks about repenting and rending your heart. Why? It says because God is very gracious. He's slow to anger. Um, and he will respond. When we, whenever we respond in true repentance, God is there and will forgive us. And in this in this particular passage, he actually promises to restore all that the locusts destroyed. And that doesn't always happen in our lives when, when we turn and, and learn and uh, respond to God's discipline. But yet God often will restore what was lost. He's so gracious in, in how he responds to our um, repentance. And then the end of chapter 2 where God sends his actual, his Holy Spirit to live inside of us to empower us um, to do the right thing. Um, I'm just thankful for a God that does all of that for us. So 
looking at the book, The Day of the Lord Will Come, The Purpose of God's Discipline is Always for My Good, Repentance is the only appropriate response to God's discipline, and God will respond graciously to repentance. Thank you for, um, thanks for your attention and, and uh, considering one whole book um, of the Bible today. I invite you to stand. I just want to close out with prayer. I'm going to leave it uh, quiet just a little bit, and you can pray and not respond to anything that I said, but if the Lord spoke to you from his word or any of these truths, um, would you just talk to the Lord? There's things that you need to repent of, or if you want to talk to him about areas of discipline, whatever it is, um, I'll leave it quiet a little bit, and then I will close. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. God, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you are a kind Father, a gracious shepherd. And God, thank you that you are gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in mercy. You're, you're, just, you're full of goodness and graciousness to us. And we thank you, God. God, I, I pray that uh, you would take what was shared. And Lord, the, the things or the words that were for me that weren't of you and your kindness, would you blow them away? And God, if there's any parts that are from you, would you have that um, land in good soil? God, reminds us, remind us of these truths this week. I pray that there would be something from this book, from your word, um, that we could grow by and, and uh, would just bear fruit for you. We love you. ask that you would care for us and provide what we need um, for this week to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here. You are dismissed.